We're going to be back in Judges this morning. Some of you are excited about that. Some of you not so much. You were relieved to be in John last week. I'm happy to be back in Judges. We only have four chapters left. Uh, So let's talk a, a little bit about where we've come to in the book. If you remember way back when, when we first opened the book, uh, we said that it's split into three distinct sections. The first two chapters are actually a dual introduction. That just means there's two introductions there. And then in between, we have chapters 3 through 16. And that's the, the body of the, of the book where we talk about the judges mostly. Israel sins, cries out, God raises up this great deliverer to set them free. And then they sin again. We called that the judges cycle. So the last time we were here, we finished up with Samson. If you remember, he tore down the building. It fell upon himself. And we talked about uh, some of the parallels, some of the similarities between his life and Jesus' life. And now we're entering into the fourth section of the book. And much like the first section that was two introductions, we're going to have kind of two conclusions or two uh, appendixes or appendices. I'm not sure which the plural is there. Uh, And an appendix is just kind of an explanatory section on what's come before is how these ones function anyway. And so so prior, we've kind of been flying over at 10,000 feet, if you will, and kind of looking down on what's been going on. We've looked at, well, Israel sinned, and then they called out to the Lord. And we didn't have very many details about how, what that sin looked like on a day-to-day basis. And, and what we're going to see here is an up-close and personal look at sin. An up-close and personal look at what that evil was like that was going on in Israel. And, uh, and I think this morning in our text, we're just going to be in the first six verses of chapter 17. First six verses of chapter 17. I think that the main idea of the text, or, or what, what I determined to be, is that theology matters. That what we think about God matters. What we're going to see this morning is Micah and his mother think wrongly about who God is. And so they worship him according to what is right in their eyes, what is true for them. Instead of according to his word. Likewise, when we worship God according to what is right in our eyes or what is true for us, instead of according to his word, it's because we have thought wrongly about who God is. And thus theology matters. It always matters. Our game plan this morning is to work through the text in in three sections. We're going to look at a sinful son and his enabling mother. Then we're going to look at their image issue. And lastly, we'll see an impotent priest. Sinful son, an enabling mother, an image issue, and an impotent priest. Before we get into the text, though, would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this section of Scripture. We thank you that you reveal yourself to us in all of your word. And that it's trustworthy and sure. And that's the only authority on how we should live our lives and how we should worship you rightly. And so, God, I ask now that you would help us to think rightly as we think through this text, as we work through it together. That you would help us to see what it is you have for us to take from the text about you and to apply to our lives as we learn to grow up into spiritual maturity together. Lord, I pray that you help us to love your word. I pray that you would set our hearts on fire this morning. We ask this by your Holy Spirit. Amen. It should be pointed out that this section of Scripture uh, illustrates life without any thought of God. And so these last four chapters are a very, very bleak and grim portion of Scripture. 
so much, so much so that I doubt you have ever really heard them preached on or ever really studied them. And you'll see how intense it gets in later weeks. And this section this morning is bleak, uh, but not quite as bleak as, as it gets. And so we start with verse 1. There was a man of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, The 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse, and also spoke it to my ears, behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, Blessed be my son by the Lord. So what's going on here is a case of theft. You have a a son named Micah who has stolen a whole bunch of silver from his mom. And she does what most ancient Near Easterners would have. And she pronounces a curse over the person that took that silver. Whoever took it, let bad stuff happen to him. Well, Micah, who being her son, happens to hear this curse. And so he thinks, I really don't want any of this bad stuff to happen to me. And so he goes to his mom and says, hey, you know, uh, you know that silver that you're looking for? Actually, I took it. You know, I saw it there sitting in your purse on the nightstand, and it just was calling to me, and so I grabbed that money. I'm the one who took it. Here it is. And so his mom responds by trying to reverse the curse. That's what you did in the, in the ancient Near East, by pronouncing a blessing. He tells her that he stole money, and she says, Blessed be my son. I don't know about y'all, but that's not exactly how it worked for me when I was growing up. <laughs> Uh, I may or may not have taken a couple dollars from mom every once in a while and, and, and gone down to the convenience store and, you know, bought some soft drinks and some candy. Uh, usually I was not met with blessing, but with a different kind of cursing and, uh, and usually a little bit of discipline. I'm not going to go into detail there. It'll embarrass me. But uh, that's not what happens here. His mom blesses him. And so it's a, it's a little bit backwards. Uh, but I want to talk about Micah first. We're going to talk about both of them a little bit. Uh, Micah here sins in at least two ways. One is really obvious, right? He steals, and that's very weighty. But the second is not not so obvious to our contemporary eyes, not so obvious to me anyway. And I think it's because we forget the weightiness of this particular sin in our culture. We don't think of it as a big deal because it's so commonplace and ultimately because we don't really have to go uh, to the temple to make sacrifices anymore. Uh, Thanks be to God. But that that first sin that we don't really see is the dishonoring of his mother. The dishonoring of his mother. He decided in his heart that he would dishonor his mother when he decided to steal the money from her. Yes, theft is a sin, but so too is the dishonoring of his mom. Even though we take it lightly. In the Old Testament, this wouldn't have been the case. Uh, In Deuteronomy 27, it says this, Cursed be anyone who dishonors his father or his mother. So just in dishonoring her, he was bringing curse upon himself. Exodus is even more intense when it talks about the dishonoring of parents. It says, whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. It's pretty intense. It's pretty weighty matter. Now, Micah here, he hasn't cursed his mom, but he certainly needs her forgiveness. Sin is weighty. He needs to be restored to his mother and to the Lord. Ultimately, right, all sin is a sin against the party that we're offending as well as the Lord. He needs to be restored. He also needs to be restored for his theft. 
And in returning the, the money to his mom, there are a few other things he should have done to be able to make that relationship right. And Leviticus outlines some of them for us in chapter 6, starting with verse 4, speaking of one that has stolen. If he has sinned and realized his guilt and will restore what he took by robbery or what he got by oppression or the deposit that was committed to him or the lost thing that he found or anything about which he has sworn falsely, he shall restore it in full and watch this, add a fifth to it and give it to the one to whom it belongs on the day that he realizes his guilt. And he shall bring to the priest as his compensation to the Lord a ram without blemish out of the flock or its equivalent for a guilt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord and he shall be forgiven any of the things that one may do and thereby become guilty. What Leviticus shows us with this knowledge of the law and what he needed to do to be restored to right relationship with his mother and with the Lord, it shows us that his repentance is really disingenuous. It's not a real repentance. He's not really sorry. He just doesn't want the consequences of his sin. He hears that curse from his mom and he thinks, oh no, I don't want bad things to happen to me. Kind of, I got caught with my hand in the cookie jar a little bit. His repentance is insincere. He hasn't realized his guilt because if he had, he would be paying it back with 20% and he didn't add 20% to it. I think this is a great example of what worldly sorrow looks like versus godly sorrow. If you remember back in chapter 6, at the beginning of the Gideon narrative, we spoke of it a little bit. Israel cried out to God and God said, look, you are not really crying out because you want to return to me or because you're sorry for your sin but because you're sorry about the consequences of that sin. Remember, we, we looked at what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 7. He says, As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Remember we said worldly grief has no value to it, but godly grief, grief that leads us into repentance, leads to life without regret. If Micah was truly repentant, he would have restored the silver, added the 20%. And then we would see in the next scene him uh, getting ready to go to Shiloh, where the tent of meeting or the tabernacle had been set up, and and getting ready to head there with his sacrifice, hand it off to the priest, and have the priest make atonement for his sin. But that's not what we see. That's not what Micah does. In fact, we're going to see quite the opposite. But uh, before we get to the rest of the story, uh, let's talk about his mother for a second. I think mom disservices Micah also in two different ways. Firstly, she calls blessed what the Bible calls cursed. She calls that which is evil good upon her son returning Uh, the silver to her. Moreover, she takes that silver, she returns it to her son in in, in a way, and she says this, she says, blessed be my son. Blessed be my son. She doesn't really cause him to repent. She doesn't call him to true repentance, true acknowledgement of his sin. She doesn't make him work through that painful process of reconciliation. I mean, she's in a sticky parental situation. 
She needs to say, hey, it's good that you're saying sorry, but let's talk about why you did what you did. She doesn't make him struggle through examining his heart to think about why he would dishonor her and dishonor God. There's no humble acceptance on Micah's part. There's no acceptance of his need for grace. There's no acceptance of his need for change. And therefore, there's no deterrent to this type of action in the future. I think this shows us that uh, while a condemning and punishing parent hurts a child, so too does an excusing parent. And there is a reason for the proverb, whoever spares the rod hates his son, but whoever loves him is diligent to discipline him. Indeed, it's true. Whoever spares the rod spoils the child. And here we see her sparing the rod of discipline. Secondly, and I think it's very much related to the first thing, uh, mom here has clearly not taught Micah the Shema which is very, very famous in Judaism. It's a famous passage in Deuteronomy in chapter 6, verses 4 through 7. It's this uh, commandment to all of Israel. And, and it, this is what it says. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them. When you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Mom has not taught Micah the word of the Lord. And clearly by her actions and by his actions and what we're about to see, the word of the Lord is not in her heart. She chosen the easy way out and flippantly forgave Micah. Instead of challenging him to true repentance, instead of pointing him to the word of God and teaching these things to her child. Now uh, comes the application and the application isn't going to be, you know, 27 precepts to perfect parenting from me, a 27 year old who's hardly been a parent. Um, But many of you are our parents or grandparents in the room. And and I think one thing that I glean from this and from the, the text in Deuteronomy, I think it's applicable to us is that we're called to love Jesus with our whole hearts and to teach our children to do likewise. We need to love Jesus and to teach others to do the same. So let me ask you, how are you doing with that? Grandparents, are you teaching your children and your children's children to love Jesus? Parents, are you teaching your children to love Jesus? Or maybe if you're just a kid, you're not married, you don't have any other, you don't have kids yet. Are you, are you teaching others to love Jesus? Is his word on your heart? Or are you just kind of going through the, the churchy motions, doing the, the right things? These things do need to be on our hearts and on our minds and on our lips. When we sit in our house, we should talk of them. When we drive in the car, when we go to the grocery store, when we're filling up on gas, when we go to bed at night, when we wake up in the morning, the word of the Lord should be on our minds and in our hearts. Is his word in you? Do you know his word? So that when the rubber meets the road and there is sin or there is something to do, that you're able to worship God rightly, that you're able to live your life in a way that's pleasing to him. See, Micah and his mother both sin because they don't love God with their whole hearts. They don't have his word in their hearts. 
they're thinking wrongly about who God is. See, theology, it matters. It always matters. What you think about God matters because it's going to spill over into your actions. This fact will be made more evident as we work through the text uh, in verse 3. An image issue. And he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. Note that it's not plus 20%. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. So when he restored the money to his mother, she took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith who made it into a carved image and a metal image. And it was in the house of Micah. This is stunning. I mean, this, see, this move from his mom should shock us, right? I mean, Micah's name actually means uh, who is like Yahweh, who is like God, the God of Israel. And it assumes the answer, no one is like God. So his mother comes across at first by this pie, as this pious figure. Even the formulation of her sentence to dedicate this um, money to the house of the Lord is very spiritual. It's very um, indicative of the fact that she follows the God of Israel. But what she tries to honor God with is actually very distasteful. It's actually spitting in the face of the Lord. She wants to worship God in a way that he strictly prohibits by making an idol. Exodus 20, verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. I mean, this is the second of the Ten Commandments. Although I do think it's important for us to maybe ponder together, why would God... Tell us, don't make any images. Don't worship me with any created thing. I think there are many answers to this. Uh, but what I want to offer to you this morning is, uh, is from, from J.I. Packer. He writes this. Images dishonor God and obscure his glory. Images dishonor God and obscure his glory. The likeness of created things is precisely not a likeness of their creator. A true image of God, wrote Calvin, is not to be found in all the world. And hence, his glory is defiled and his truth corrupted by the lie whenever he is set before our eyes in a visible form. Therefore, to devise any image of God is itself impious, because by this corruption, his majesty is adulterated and he is figured to be other than he is. The point here is that Images inevitably conceal most, if not all, of the truth about the personal nature and character of the divine being whom they represent. Images mislead us, for they convey false ideas about God. The very inadequacy with which they represent him perverts our thoughts of him and plants in our minds errors of all sorts about his character and about his will. Keller adds, any graven image or depiction of God would automatically reveal part of God's nature, but conceal another part. Images can't express the full range of God's glory and thus distort your view of God. Worshiping God with images reveals an inward spirit which does not want to submit to God as he is, 
but which wants to pick and choose attributes in order to create a God who is more palatable to us. The real issue in worship by images is the desire to reshape and revise God. In modern terms, we filter out consciously or unconsciously things about God that our hearts do not want to accept. In some ways, this is the, this is the main sin of our time. And how often have you heard someone say, I don't believe in a God that would be like that. A God that would tell us to do this and would prohibit us from that. I can't believe in that kind of God. It just doesn't fit with what feels right in my heart. I think this highlights uh, this issue in our culture. Some of us, and for Micah and his mom, want God to look a lot like we picture him. We want to worship him in our own way. We want a God that serves our desires, not the true God of the universe. And so in trying to worship him in our own ways, we actually dishonor him in our worshiping ourselves as we set ourselves up on his throne. Let me illustrate here. Be kind of as if, pretend I had a really famous painting in my house, like a Picasso. Pretend I could afford something like that. So I've got this sweet painting up, and um, let's pretend Elliot's a little bit older. He's like six or seven. And, and I tell him, look, this painting is very valuable to me. Don't, don't, don't touch it, right? Don't ever draw on it. Don't, don't even think about touching it. You can look at it. That's it. And then I, I come home one day, and Elliot says, Dad, I drew you a picture. Just, but I love you so much. I, wanna, I want to show my obedience to you that I love you. And so I drew you a picture. Come here. Come look at this. And he takes me to the wall where the Picasso is. And he scribbled all over it with crayons. And stick figures. He's just completely desecrated it. You see, his intent to honor me doesn't really matter there. Because he's disobeyed me in that attempt to honor me. And so it's not a pleasing thing. Right? I'm probably going to be pretty disappointed. <laughs> it's actually just disobedience. It's, it's rebellion. So too when we try to worship God in our own ways. Highlighting just the things about him that we like. I think many of us might be a little bit like Thomas Jefferson who made his own Bible. I don't know if you've heard about this, but the, the Jefferson Bible was a book constructed by Thomas Jefferson in the later years of his life. And uh, he did so by cutting and pasting with a razor and glue uh, a number of sections from the New Testament as extractions of the doctrine of Jesus. And so he condensed this composition, uh, and it's pretty notable for uh, its exclusion of all the miracles by Jesus. Uh, Most mentions of the supernatural are cut out, including uh, large sections of all four Gospels. Uh, you, You don't see the resurrection in his version of the Bible. And so all these supernatural things, things that are essential to our faith, are excluded from this Jefferson Bible. He just kind of copy and pasted, cut and pasted what he liked out of it. I think we do this very same thing. We have our versions of the Bible that allow us to reject things we don't like. Usually we do so by wrapping ourselves in the mantle of so-called progress. And friends, I think progress in the world is often regress spiritually. Progress in the world is regress spiritually quite often. And I think Keller is spot on in addressing this desire of our culture, this desire in us to create a God in our own image. And he writes this, Our culture's distaste for this idea, a God that cannot be tamed or reshaped and makes demands on us, means that we must drop him. 
We must have a God who fits our culture's sensibilities. This means we, much like Micah's family, are reshaping God to fit our society and our hearts instead of letting God reshape our hearts and our society. We want, we want to fit in. We want to be acceptable. And so we create a God that is more palatable, one that looks more like us than Jesus. One that allows us to ignore and avoid things that might be controversial. It's a picture of Jesus that often makes everything subjective so that our morality is so murky that it can change with the blowing winds of culture. Uh, For example, you have two professing Christians and uh, they're having sex with one another, even though they're not married. And and you ask them why, and they say, "Uh, well, because we prayed about it and praying's good. And then they follow that up with, we just felt a peace about it. That's irrelevant. Of course you're going to feel peace about it, I bet. Ignoring the objective commands of God in order to do what you want. I mean, they know what the Bible says about God and marriage and sexuality and how that's reserved for the marriage covenant. Yet they just twist the word a little bit so that they can do what they want to do. They're worshiping a God that's not the God of the Bible. They're ignoring his commandment and trying to make it subjective. This is a problem for, for many reasons when we reshape God. Because it makes it, makes it impossible to have a truly personal relationship with God. Right? I mean, in a personal relationship with a real person, that other person has the power to contradict me or you and upset us. What happens in normal relationships, like if my wife upsets me, I can't just go, no, you don't really think that. You, th- you think the same thing I do. No, you have to wrestle through it in order to get to a deeper intimacy, in order to have peace in that relationship. But when we simply ignore intellectually or psychologically the parts of God that we don't like, it means that we don't have a God that can ever contradict us, can never say no to our deepest desires. We never wrestle with him. We never let him make any demands on our lives. And so we end up worshiping a much more comfortable God, but also a non-existent one. Micah and his mother may say that they follow God, but their actions are revealing that they really aren't, that they're following their hearts. I had a professor in seminary, and he had an equation. You've heard me bring it up a few times now. And he would say, look, if you want to find out what somebody believes, you just take their stated belief, you add that together with their actual practice, and you're going to come out on the other side. That's going to equal their actual belief. See, belief and behavior go together to show us what we really think, what we really believe. Theology and practice, they hold hands and they kiss. See, flawed theology is going to lead to flawed living. Flawed theology is going to lead to flawed living. Theology matters. It always matters. What you think about God will spill over into how you live your life. And if you think wrongly about him, you're going to end up like Micah and his mother, worshiping him in a way that will bring curse rather than blessing, in a way that's despicable. 
Also, I think this section of Scripture shows us something else. Micah and his mother are spoken of as being kind of out there on their own. And and as I read this, I couldn't help but think, if Micah and his mom were committed to uh, a body of followers of God, that this sin could have been prevented. It made me think of contemporary society and and, uh, church membership, how we are holding one another accountable to a standard, that is, the Bible. Right? That if one of you sin or I sin, we would hold one another accountable. That if you wanted to worship God in a way that he forbids, I I would come to you and say, brother, sister, no, no, no. Look what God has said in his word. We need to be obedient to it. I think biblical community helps us guard against flawed theological thinking. Biblical community helps guard us against sin and it works for our good. It helps us to mature in Christ. Helps us to become and practice what he's called us to be, what he's declared us to be in truth. And that's his sons and his daughters. But Micah and his mother are not in community, it doesn't seem. And they, like the rest of Israel, are doing what is right in their own eyes, what's true for them. Not worshiping God according to his word, but according to their taste and its sin. Trying to kind of fix their relationship with God on their own terms. We see this further. Verse 5. We see this impotent or powerless priest. And the man Micah had a shrine and he made an ephod and household gods. And ordained one of his sons who became his priest. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Instead of heading to the tabernacle at Shiloh with his offering, his ram, like we talked about earlier, to ask that priest to make atonement for his sin, Micah just stays home. And we discover that he's set up his own center for worship, that he's even installed his own priest. If you're not sure about the role of priest, a priest acts on behalf of the people in relationship with God and offers gifts and sacrifices for sins. I mean, more simply, the priest just kind of acts as a mediator to broker peace between people and God. Micah, by setting up his own, is posing a direct challenge to the officially authorized Arianic priesthood. He's going directly against the word of the Lord. God's people were not allowed to worship him anywhere they wanted, anyhow they wanted. They were supposed to submit themselves to the worship that God wanted. What we have here is not true faith, but a religion of personal preference. Ultimately, Micah has elements of true faith in his religion, but by blending true faith with his personal and cultural preferences, he's abandoned true faith altogether. He's abandoned submission to God for submission to self. See, our actions are always in submission to something. And what we're submissive to or obedient to reveals what we love most. Actions will reveal belief. And they'll show us what we think. Micah thinks his preference is more important than God's commandment. Thus, he's set himself up as more important than God, as his own God. Theology matters. It always matters. It eventually spills over into our actions. Obedience to God's word is not an optional extra that you add to your own spirituality. 
It's a necessary requirement of orthodoxy. It's a requirement of true faith. I mean, fundamentally, the faith of God's people is a revealed faith. God reveals himself in his word. We don't discover him through our reason or our experience. In short, in his word, God says, worship me as I am, not as you want me to be. Worship me as my heart directs you, not as your heart suggests. Micah's family shapes a God who is convenient to worship. They follow the laws they like and ignore the laws they don't like. This is what it looks like for a society to do whatever they see fit. It doesn't mean that there's a conscious rejection of God, nor does it require no longer calling on God or ceasing religious activity. In fact, religious activities on the rise, as we'll see uh, throughout the rest of chapter 17. After all, a shrine in your house seems pretty uh, committed, right? Seems pretty committed. But this is religion on Israel's terms, according to each person's personal preference. It's a religion that is not about God and his truth and his will, but about me and my ideas and preferences. It's a religion which seeks to control and tame God to remake him in an image, an image that we're comfortable with, an image that looks like us. It is an easy or an exciting religion, but it is not a religion that can bring rescue or blessing. Homemade religion will not save you. It will not rescue. Homemade religion, religion that's true for you, cannot rescue. The personal priest of preference cannot atone for sin. Only the great high priest can atone for sin and bring blessing and rescue. Thankfully, Jesus doesn't require that we bring a sacrifice in order to make restitution, but instead makes himself our perfect and final sacrifice. Makes himself a propitiation for our sins and indeed is the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. He's been designated by God, a high priest after the order of Melchizedek forever. We are so much like Micah and his mother. And we attempt to fix ourselves and set up our own priests instead of coming to the priest, Jesus, and resting in his finished work. I mean, when we start fixing ourselves instead of trusting Jesus, it is because we have either forgotten the gospel or that we don't believe the gospel in the first place. We forget that Jesus plus nothing is everything. It's because we have not thought rightly about God that we walk away from him. See, theology matters. It always matters. Non-Christian this morning I want to challenge you to quit following this non-existent God of truth for you and follow the one who is the way, the truth, and the life, objectively. Christian, I want to challenge you this morning to embrace and to meditate on Jesus. Think about the truth. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things, Christian. Think about the gospel. Think rightly about God. Micah and his mother think wrongly about who God is, and so they worship him according to what is right in their eyes instead of according to his word. Likewise, when we worship God according to what is true for us, instead of according to his word, 
It's because we've thought wrongly about who God is. Friends, theology matters. It always matters. It's going to spill over into your action. It's going to reveal your heart. I pray this morning that you love God with your whole heart. Would you pray with me in closing? Father, we thank you that you have given yourself to us. That you've manifested your perfection in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that by placing our faith in him, we can have life and life abundant. Life without regret. That we can learn what it is to follow you and to be like Jesus by simply confessing and repenting. By following you in faith and committing ourselves to community. Your community. God, we pray that you would help us individually and corporately to grow up into what you've called us to be. Your bride. Help us to be blemishless. To be perfect as you are perfect. To be holy as you are holy by the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you that you have made us right with yourself through the cross. That even though we deserve death, you took death for us. Even though we're unrighteous, you gave us your righteousness so that we can be complete and have true shalom. Lord, you are our perfect peace. Help us to rest in that peace and to live our lives in light of that peace as we learn to worship you rightly, to think about you rightly. God, all of life is worship. Help us to live lives that bring you glory. Amen.